You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on Red Bull Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, in the studio today with my good friends Carl and Ken Meyer of Standards and Practices, uh, a new label they're about to launch, which we'll talk about a little later on. Uh, but these guys are going to be here in the mix for the entire two hours. We're going to take a break in the middle for an interview to talk about the new label and some other things. So stay locked in. Again, this is The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, and we have been in the mix with the Meyer brothers, Carl and Ken Meyer. Hey there. Thanks for coming down, guys. Thanks for having us. Um, so I guess we should start by talking about your roots. Um, where did you guys meet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to feel this one, Carl? <laughs> Which one of you is the older brother? We're actual brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't just happen to have the same last name and... Although I told him he was adopted for the longest. <laughs> Learning something new every day. So. so were you guys born born and raised in Chicago? Is that how this works? Or um, Western suburbs. Yeah, Western suburbs. Glen Ellen. Represent. Yeah, love Glen Ellen. <laughs> it's beautiful this time of year. And um, at what point did you guys, you guys are obviously like infamously some of the most, uh, the, the deepest music nerds with your knowledge of I mean, all music, even outside of the kind of music you've been playing here. When, like, when did this start? Were your were your parents crazy into music, or how? Where did um, the obsession? Begin? You know, it's it's interesting. They they had a pretty extensive record collection for a long time, but my parents don't come from a particularly musical background. Um, a lot of it was the kind of stuff that everyone had in their collection, right? Um, but at the same time, there were some uh, anomalies in there, and I. For whatever reason, I just gravitated towards the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and David Bowie, and I think that's uh, that was kind of my introduction, to be honest. And I think that I mean you were you're older than I am by it's about four and a half years, and I think mm -hmm. you were more exposed to that generation of them listening to music in the house and like kind of yes. having that be part of their day to day. And when I was growing up, it was Carl kind of assumed that role so i was mostly then listening to things he was listening to which you know moved quickly from rock to synth pop to electronic stuff and i think that's where my interest came from really was all through carl's uh yeah and we had a we had a family friend who uh their daughter uh i don't think she worked for a m but she had a friend that did and she was getting all these promos and things like that and uh -huh. i heard uh Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, it was when um, Junk Culture came out and, you know, Tesla Girls was the single. And I remember being in the car and just thinking, you know, what on earth is that? And uh, that's, that. I think that really sent me down another path. And I was just obsessed with electronic music, like anything electronic. What, what year was that about? Oh man, it was probably about 85. Wow. Yeah. And then when did you start uh, like collecting records on your own? Because um, well, vinyl uh, we didn't we weren't really we didn't even have a record player for the longest time um, prior the, to getting like twelve hundreds and all of that. Sort of the start of this this generation in a way because we had we started with the CDJs. It was like the, one of the first generation the first of the first Pioneer CDJ. And mm -hmm. uh, that was that was, the one hundred? I, I believe it's the five. But it was oh, the it, top loading one that had like hardly any bells and whistles. I remember yeah. they, were, they kept that top loading model for a while. I remember that yeah. one where it came up and And I mean it, after, you know, about a year or something it's like but yeah. it, <laughs> we still yeah. you could still figure it out. Yeah, they had to rethink that, I think. But um, but then 12s actually came after that. I think we got 1200s later. Yeah, you had more of an interest in, in DJing with vinyl. But I, I, you know, I never really uh, thought about being a DJ initially. But I went to a pro audio shop where they were. Um, there was a demonstration for the, the CDJs, which were brand new at the time. 
And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because then that means I can put to use all this music that I already have and I don't have to, you know, build a collection from the ground up necessarily. Um, and then we started working at Gramophone later on down the line. Um, and then we started buying a lot more vinyl around then, partially because uh, there was so much music that you couldn't get on CD. It right. was only this, on vinyl. Well, yeah, this would, this would have been before people were you know buying tunes online and exactly. even downloading them like to you were actually playing the commercial cds that yeah. you bought pre-discogs pre yeah yeah when dinosaurs were on the earth yeah. which we were doing <laughs> pre-discogs and that's... doing like vinyl rips to yeah. cd burner you know it's such a like it's convoluted <laughs> backwards process in a way but that was so we could share because also you would get like digital or cd compilations that had exclusive tracks as well so yeah. we could kind of like to get the best of both worlds. And this is pretty early. I mean, this is mid-90s, I guess. When, is, when did yeah. we have both the CDJs and turntables at home at mm -hmm. a pretty... No one... I remember we would play a party and bring those, and people hadn't really seen them before. They were like a really strange novelty. They, I feel like they were still pretty novel. I'm trying to think. Josh Wink played at the bunker around like 2007, and he played on CDJs then. And I remember a lot of people in the audience just being like... Super, yeah, baffled. I was gonna like, say, what it, it took solidly. This, what is he doing? <laughs> it's not a computer, it's not yeah. a turntable. Because for the longest time before then, we had we always had two turntables at the bunker at Subtonic, and then at some point, we added I think the venue had the one of these early CDJs, the top loading ones, right? And yeah. Derek, Derek had some digital promos and would occasionally be playing on that. And even then, people were like, what is he doing up there? What, sure, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they didn't really become an industry standard until uh. I would say about a decade after their inception. Um, I mean, Denon had, had beaten Pioneer to the punch. Um, you probably remember what those look like that had the trays. They were yeah. like a rack mount. Yeah, like a rack oh, mount. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, they, they weren't exactly like a, like a club standard, and, you know, wedding DJs, mobile DJs would use them yeah. predominantly. Um, I remember you playing became... Smart Bar on those, though. Didn't that happen? Oh, yeah, So you're using sure. the push-button push, push button pitch control, yeah. and it's oh, like, yeah. I mean, it's come a, on, oh. it's a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a massive pain, yeah. So that's really where our uh, love of technology was <laughs> yeah. born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, now today you're playing from Ableton, and this is, I mean, the number of different setups that I've seen for people DJing this way, like, kind of boggles the mind. It's... There's, DJs have a lot of options these days, I guess is what I'm saying. For sure. Well, you used to also DJ that way, Brian. Right? I DJed or, from Ableton on? around like 2000, I think I started in 2004 and 5. Mm -hmm. um, actually, when I was going out to Burning Man, which I know you guys Huge love. supporters. Yeah, yeah. yeah, really. That's where we met. <laughs> yeah. On the playa. Yeah. On the playa. But I was, I'd actually played there for the first time in 2001 on like a, a stack of CDs like commercial CDs, not a lot of burn stuff. And I remember them opening out there and with the dust storms, oh like gosh. this was super problematic. Oh. So when I was going back a few years later, my friends, uh, Wolf and Lamb, who were DJing from Ableton, were like, you should really, this is just gonna be a lot better. Like you just need to get some tracks in Ableton, warp them, and then you can play on our setup. And so it's probably a f at least a few years after then that I did that and then Tractor Scratch with Vinyl Control, yeah. with Vinyl, and then Vinyl with CDJs, and now I'm, I pretty much just use the CDJs when I... They're so versatile now. I mean, they're such an amazing tool, and I think that was what we were always really most interested in, was just how could we do something a little bit different with the material? And 
I, you know, there was a time where there was no real standard, and now there is. So it, I think if you were going to grow up today and want to be a DJ and want to be touring it, that's the thing to use. It makes um, sense. You don't have to take a laptop into the club. They're yeah. absolutely stone. I mean, at this point, the CDJ, the Pioneer CDJ 2000s are in every DJ booth, and there's many that don't have 1200s anymore. Or right. It's like the promoter of the club has to bring in 1200s when a DJ requests them which is a whole other problematic thing because they're very finicky machines that were, I think, worked really well when everybody was playing on vinyl. But now that that's not the case and they're not there every week and they're not being maintained, it's caused a lot of problems for vinyl DJs. And that was the thing for us too, uh, you know, growing up and uh, playing in Chicago, which it just, you know, like a lot of people when they're starting out, Playing is few and far between. You don't get a lot of opportunities to do it, and we'd constantly get all excited, pull music, go buy new stuff for a show, get there, and it's push-button CDJs, or it's one turntable uh, on a separate table over here at a lower level, and you know a mixer that's like six years old and has been spilled on a number of times. It just, I think that that was part of the impetus to move toward a more familiar format that we could control. Is just it. It there were too many. Uh, I don't know, missed opportunities. You know, you want to present the right kind of musical. Yeah, the way you want to present it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you briefly mentioned working at Gramophone, which is a legendary mm -hmm. record store in Chicago, when you, you both worked there. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time. Carl was much, much there much longer than I. Yeah, I started uh, before Ken. There, I guess there was a bit of overlap. Mm -hmm. yeah. But um, yeah, worked there for several years. I was um, in college at the time, so it was more of like a summer job. Uh, and Carl was there full time for uh, yeah several years, mm -hmm. and that was a real. I mean, you know, a, a place where lots of Chicago industry people would come in and, and guests, tourists to the to town. But you'd have you know Derek Carter listening to records in the booth on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and touring DJs come in asking for recommendations, and became a kind of yeah just meeting point uh, that was really influential for us. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think that's one of the. It's a big thing that unfortunately a lot of. A lot of the U.S. especially is missing now is that meeting point as much as everybody's getting records and especially music digitally, but we're yeah, kind of community missing aspect. that. I mean, uh, I would, I mean, we've said this on the show before, but I would argue that Control in Brooklyn, which is the modular synth shop, has actually started taking on that role mm -hmm. where people mm -hmm. just like kind of hang out, talk about music, talk about gear more than in the record stores here now. And of course, Gramophone is still up and running and still legendary and one of makes me very happy to know that because i mean there were definitely times i mean it's you know changed ownership um from different space yeah different space but it's always managed to push through difficult times and i think it says a lot about chicago where it has its some of its other um downsides and difficult to build that community and maybe have successful parties on the scale of new york um gramophone's been a constant yeah so uh, were your, I assume your early gigs were in Chicago, like your first DJ gigs? When, when did those yeah. happen? Um, let's see. I was probably just f towards, you know, the end of my high school, you know, years. Um, Ken was much younger when he started playing. I started playing when I was like 14. I probably played shows 15, 16. It reminds me of someone like Bill Converse or, you know, there, and I knew yeah. Bill from more abstractly at that time, but there were these kids that would show up like, where are your parents? You know, are yeah. your parents allowing you to go to these parties? What's, but uh, I mean, a pretty teetotal and like, 
not really interested in the party scene. It was just, we would go and stand next to the DJ booth all night and just train spot tracks like a couple nerds. And uh, for whatever reason, our parents allowed us to do this. We're fully aware of what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I met your father at Berghain, so they're still involved in the scene, really. <laughs> that actually happened. Yeah, it did. <laughs> met him while I was playing in the booth. The... <laughs> What happens for dad at Bergheim stays yeah. at Bergheim. <laughs> but that's, I mean, no, it's amazing that our parents were that supportive. I mean, and yeah. still continue to be. Without a doubt. You know, they, they wrote us after the show on uh, Saturday and we're asking, you know, how did it go? You know, that's, I think that's really nice that we still have that support. Yeah. Well, yeah, the absolutely. show you speak of on Saturday was The Bunker, where you guys played between Patrick Russell and Marco Shuttle. Mm -hmm. Went really well. I thought it was a terrific night. Yeah. It was really great. Yeah, like really, really good crowd, really good vibe, and just super solid music all night. I think, I mean, it says a lot about the party, but I think what's so cool to, now that I live in New York, uh, and have been to the party for a number of years just to see how it's kind of it morphs I mean, it's there's a consistent thread of people who always go But um, there, it constantly surprises me the way people respond and maybe that's just a product of being on stage a little bit But I thought, um, you know, there's just a lot of energy new energy all the time that continues to push it in a different way And yeah, it's super encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we have people who I'm always telling people this that it's there's some of us that have been in this for a long time, like Viz and Grant, a lot of people have been coming, and yourself has been coming to the bunker forever, but then people drop out of this scene. All like, it's time. really not something that everybody, especially going out to the events that everybody stays engaged with, people get a good job, they start having kids, they just don't come out. So yeah, it's, at this point, there's for sure old school people, but then there's a lot of new faces, these people just getting into the music now and really enthusiastic about it. It says something about the curation for the party too, and to, you know, to, to say, you know, that we're thankful for that is like, there's an, a stress about trying to bring some new and old together, which um, in Chicago was a thing we experienced a lot when we started going to raves. You know, those were, parties were multi-genre, multi-generation, um, you know, it, that diversity often was really bizarre and it didn't always work. Like yeah. a party had no cohesion. Yeah, but, the, um, the era of one hour sets where like the funky breaks guy played before the trance guy and then the techno <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah, drum and bass. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, precisely. But yeah, now there's more cohesion, but across a range of different backgrounds. And I think that's crucial to having a, a party that doesn't get like stuck and feeling really obvious all the time. So more, re well, you guys had a party and you did your own party at one point, right? Did, yeah. We threw some parties um, under a few different names or aliases, but um, was really because of a desperate interest in bringing in certain artists that weren't coming to the states. So, like That's right. James Ruskin is a good example of someone who, you know, had just never been here, and we were such a huge fan of the early Blueprint records, and we just. You know, we were kids. We just wrote him. We had no money. We had no business really organizing this event. Yeah, right. But it's we remarkable he still it. talks to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he probably the novelty of being invited by somebody in the U.S. was probably really interesting to him. I mean, I've I was in India a couple of months ago, and now I'm going to China, and I'm like, when people from somewhere like that that you don't hear from very often totally. reach out you you want to go do it yeah and especially if you've never been there i mean he had never been to the states full stop i believe or i believe that, that was yeah that, i think that was the case 
So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, we weren't particularly good at it, but I think that <laughs> the, throwing parties, DJing, uh, working at the store, I mean, for us, it was, uh, we, we had to do a little bit of all of it, had a radio show for a long time. And I mean, yeah, whether or not a thing was successful wasn't as important to us as the fact that we were just trying to participate in it and uh, like present a platform for other people to get involved. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on how you define success too. A lot of my favorite and what I consider most successful bunkers weren't like financially successful at all. That right. just happens. Um, so more recently, you guys, have you done other gigs together aside from the bunker? Last um, time was when I think we played Kiss and Tell for you at and says well, that, um, right. uh, public assembly. I mean, we played in Philly the week, couple but weeks ago. They were ago. separate sets. So I guess that's a bit, a bit different. But, I suppose. You know, okay. I mean, this is where I should probably let Carl really more weigh in. Cause in a lot of ways I'm still, kind of a, at a hobbyist level, I like to do it. And especially when I can play with people I uh, have share a common ground with, but um, you know, you've made the kind of trip to Berlin now and I think are investing more in it and trying to play a lot more. This is for me a, a special treat. But. Yeah, I suppose so. So you moved to Berlin when, Carl? Um, well, I've been there, I guess you could say officially since uh, March of last year, because that's when I got the, the visa sorted out and everything. I'd been there sort of off and on for longer than that. Uh, John and I played uh, Berlin Atonal uh, the year before last. Oh, yeah, I, I, I also played last year, but I just DJed. Um, but yeah, and uh, I went back to the States a couple of times here and there. But, um, but yeah, it's officially been a little over a year now. And you've, while you've been there, I know you've made multiple appearances at Berghain, and mm -hmm. you have an agent over there now, and you're, this is like, you're making a go of this as your career. Yeah. Or, um, actually, we don't have representation at the moment, but um, yeah, I am. I have uh, put all my eggs in that basket, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I mean, we should probably keep an eye on the phone lines, just because you're going to get a lot of requests. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You might get flooded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make sure you keep your uh, Facebook inbox clear. Yeah. Yeah. Top of those those messages. Um, but also recently, um, you guys have a new label, which I guess was kind of announced on the bunker flyer. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk about maybe the ideas behind that and plans for the label? Yeah, we, um, we've started this label called standards and practices, which will be, uh, me and John Ken, um, in the past, the talker releases have been on downwards, uh, which as you know, is owned by, uh, Regis, Carl O'Connor, um, and we just decided to do our own thing. Um, not that there, there was certainly never any, there was no fallout um, or any ill will. It's just about being able to put out a few more records. I mean, as you well know, as yeah. you all know, um, you know, it, the, the process, you know, it, it takes quite a long time to put records out at this point. There's and a queue and then there's the production timeline exactly. and the the press timeline and everything around vinyl is makes things difficult. And if you're dealing with a label, a label that has a busy release schedule, it makes things even more. It's like backlog yeah. on top of backlog to get yeah. stuff out. And Carl's got a lot on his plate and um, I totally understand that. Um, so we just decided to do our own thing and um, yeah Ken's gonna do all the graphic design which is you know wonderful and that's John's um, background I mean we should say it's John's background as well John Crone uh, Jonathan Crone is uh, Stave and uh, our third partner in the label and Carl's partner in the in talker and uh, 
he, he yeah that's his background as well we we grew up together went to high school together um you know there's there, there's a family kind of aspect to it i think mm -hmm. it was almost like a foregone conclusion that we would try to work on this together carl and john just said even though there's not a production kind of connection maybe you should get involved and uh you know, we all look forward to losing a little bit of money together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. if you look at the, yeah, the math of doing don't a record do label in 2000, I mean, it's, I don't think it's don't do it. I think No, it's don't, don't look at the math. Yeah, when just you're not, you're, you have to have some money to invest and be willing to lose. And do you guys have plans beyond the first release or the second one to talk in, about yet? Or Yeah, the second one is also... Um, in the production queue, uh, it's going to be a stave record uh, called yes. Black Hills. So the the first will be this Talker um, Battle Standards EP. Mm -hmm. um, we're hoping for a summer release on both of them, and uh, we're just kind of in the process of getting all the all the elements complete. But I mean, I'll I'll say because Carl worked on the record and probably can't speak to it. Uh, you know, outside of that, but I really, I was really blown away with the quality of the first two releases, and it's, it sort of marks a departure in their sounds a little bit. A little bit. Um, I mean, it's still fairly uh, banging, but I would say has uh, a slightly different kind of palette to it. And yeah, I've, for sure, the one track we listened to during soundcheck that was really cool and different sounding, like really immersive. We'll, we'll yeah. try to we'll try to maybe uh, work that in uh, to the set today. Yeah, for sure. We'll play it in a bit. Cool. Well, you're probably uh, hearing some of the stuff in the background as well. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned the design earlier, and we should mention because I think actually a lot of our listeners might not know this that Ken does all the graphic design for the bunker, podcast images, the design of the website, the records, our flyers. How long everything. has this been now, Brian? You know, I'm you're actually. I think a couple it's, years, two, three years. I think about three years. Three years. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, it's. I could. Uh, you look, could, yeah. look at the flyers maybe when maybe you did you were doing the flyers i think was the first thing coming up with the logo and the flyers and then we started on the record label and it took us for various reasons a lot longer to launch the website than we wanted <laughs> but eventually we got that well i mean i'm scrolling down on our website right now through all the flyers to see where you took over and there's you've done a lot actually the first flyer you did was january 4th 2013 oh wow so it's been over three years yeah four years plus and i think the the um maybe the it coincided with your move out of public assembly then sort of around that, that was time. it was right around that time we did that one at public assembly and then we just did a couple more and then that was when uh yeah everything moved to output for a while there for the most part i mean so, i just i really wanted to give back to the party because i was i really enjoyed it and i like being involved with things that you know matter to me musically if not if i'm not doing it full time as a as a career or whatever but um i think you realize pretty quickly that there were so many things with the new label and the podcast and the, all these elements that it was you had to have like a system to do this stuff because without that it would be really hard to promote all these things we yeah we really needed something like a look that tied it all together and i think you did a great job coming up with something that looks good and ties it all together but isn't like uh you don't have to come up with a whole new concept every time we do sure. something because we do between the radio shows the podcast the parties the record there's just it's quite a lot yeah too much for somebody to do unless it was their full-time job and as we said earlier about record labels making money <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. most I mean, don't have a full-time graphic designer on staff to just 
hang stuff out. Although that would be kind of incredible. Yeah, I think like uh, just knowing that you you know have the ability to put all that stuff together is also inspiring to us. So like my wife Yunjae and I run a small design studio here in New York, and we just you know treat this as one of our our, our portfolio of projects. And it's really nice because we can kind of evolve it with you as it as the bunker grows and changes. Um, the design, you know, is a part of that. So it's been nice to work on. Yeah. So I guess with that, anything else you guys want to shout out before we wind down the interview? I, I guess the label was really is like yeah, no, it was nice. Breaking news. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're really excited. I'm excited about the material. Um, John's doing some killer stuff on his own. Uh, Stave is making. I mean, the sound has really developed a ton. Uh, he's done a killer remix for. Uh, uh, Allstadt Echo, uh, uh-huh. Detroit-based producer, um, and uh, yeah, the next Standards and Practices number two is going to be really great as well. Um, and hopefully, we're going to start doing some more uh, live PA's again, uh, probably around the time that the record, the first record, comes out. Yeah, I mean, it must be kind of difficult. You're on different schedules, different continents now. Yeah, you know, in the collaborative process, it's not. Uh, you know, you acclimate to it fairly quickly, and it, it's how a lot of people work now, uh, just sending files back and forth and just kind of piggybacking off, uh, you know, um, files and stems and things like that. Um, and it's fine. Um, granted, it's, it is different from, I mean, sometimes it's nice to be in the same room together as well. And, of course. Um, I mean, for doing the live work, it's sort of crucial, in fact. And we need to do a bit more of that, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> well, in some yeah. ways, I think that's good. Then, you know, the, another thing the label does is it like lights a fire. You know, it gives you yeah. these milestones that you need to, to say, well, if we want to get the live PA ready in this time frame. I mean, even just, uh, you know, it's a it's a thing with a kind of passion project like this. It's without a kind of deadline, it's hard to make it happen. Yeah, no, it's yeah. the same with the bunker. I do a lot, but it's always just what's the next thing? What's the next deadline? It's doing things is, I don't know, doing things is the only way to do things. Totally. <laughs> totally. I think Socrates said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise you're just, uh, I don't know, sitting around talking about doing things, which there's a lot of in this scene. Totally. Absolutely. No. And yeah. I, I, I mean, uh, it, people kind of missed, uh, I guess your, the stretch of dates you did on, on this U S tour, Carl, but, uh, maybe that'll, there'll be another chance later in the year to come back and, and do some more. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, that was a it was an interesting experiment, I guess you could say. It was yeah. the first time really uh, doing a uh, a whole string of U.S. dates. Well, like yeah, you did like ten. Uh, oh, really? That yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot for mm-hmm. anybody. So yeah, cool. Well, congrats on that. I guess we'll maybe Thanks. talk a little bit at the end of the show, but for now we have about forty-five minutes later left, and we're okay. going to get back into the mix with uh, Carl and Ken Meyer. You're listening to the Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. You're listening to Red Bull Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. We've been in the mix with the Meyer Brothers, Carl and Ken, who are going to take us through the end of the show. We've only got about three minutes left here. Uh, we will be back in two weeks on April 20th with the ghost producer, a.k.a. Badawi, and Dave Q. Uh, every smoker's favorite day of the year, 420. So stay tuned for that, and uh, we're going to let the Meyer Brothers finish out the show here. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.